your roots were, were, were in Southern California. Absolutely, yes. Uh, well, I was born in Laredo, Texas, and raised in Los Angeles, California. And so and now it begins to make more sense because of, and again, you had tremendous amounts of older influences in your brothers and sisters, but I think also the AM radio was so open at that time that you could kind of, quite honestly hear almost any type of music that you wanted to. Well, yeah, at that time they would listen to the AM radio, and, they, and, and there was actually, there was only one program on the air at that time, and I think it was only on for about an hour. First, it started out only on an, uh, for an hour, and it was the Rene Tuzet show. Rene Tuzet uh, had a show called Con Sabor Latino, uh, which means with Latin flavor. And my sisters used to listen to this radio show, and Chico Sesma used to make uh, put together the dances at Hollywood Palladium once a month. He would put on the dances called the Latin Holiday Dances. Uh, he was copying what was going on in New York City at the Palladium in New York City. They would have the, the big Latin dances there also with Tito Puentes Band, Machito's Band, Tito Rodriguez. And then here in Los Angeles, Chico Sesma used to put the dances on at the Hollywood Palladium way back when in the late 50s. So my brother and sister used to go to the dances there and hear his radio show. And uh, and so that's where they started getting uh, access and, and, and would listen to the music of Cal Jader and Tito Puente and, and uh, Orquesta Aragon from Cuba. That's where they started get, getting all their ideas and stuff from the, from, uh, the Chico Sesma program on the radio here in Los Angeles that was on the AM dial at that time. How, why was Latin, why do you think in your mind did Latin music uh, take off from a sociological perspective? Was it just because it was, because it was, it was happy and, and, and there was an optimistic tone and obviously you could groove to it as well? Is there, is, is there an explanation for why that in that mid-50s, uh, you know, I know you were, you were four or five years old or you were just growing up, but it really hit hard on the coasts and I was wondering if there was a sociological component to it that you could point to. Well, it's hard to say, of course, Jake, but I, th I think, yes, I was only four or five, six years old at the time, but I, I listened to this music every day or I would watch my sisters dance. Uh, you know, four, four sisters were in one room at one time uh, growing up together, <laughs> and they used to all teach each other how to dance. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And they would learn all the latest steps, you know, the mambo, the cha-cha-cha, the pachanga, the merengue, and they used to dance with each other. So I would sit in their room and watch them all day, and, and I used to learn to dance from them when I was just a little boy. And, and so I, I think uh, the, what was happening at that time, Jake, here in, in, uh, in California, uh, there was uh, a lot of Latino people moving to Los Angeles area, San Francisco Bay Area, and and because mostly the mostly in New York there were Cubans and Puerto Ricans, and in California mostly it was Mexican American people, which is really the the mambo, the cha cha cha, the the Cuban music. It's not really our traditional music from Mexico. Our music is more like mariachi music. Uh, Tex-Mex polkas. We came from Texas where they played a lot of polka. Music. Right, right, exactly. And, and so that's where my sister learned about it here in Los Angeles. And I think it, it, it started growing uh, quickly 
but not super fast, not as much as, of course, today. It took a while to build up, but it started growing because there was more Latino people here that were starting to get involved in learning about the Cuban, Afro-Cuban music, and it was a wave of, of a style of music coming to Los Angeles from New York and Cuba. And, and therefore, the Mexican-American people that lived here started learning about that and learning how to dance the mambo and cha-cha-cha. And then once again, as you said, it, the music was very happy and it, it was very danceable. You could dance the, the mambo and cha-cha-cha is a rhythm and a dance. So the, the, all the Latin American countries have their traditional rhythms and their dances. So the dance came to California as the mambo cha-cha-cha, and at that time they used to dance the pachanga, which they don't dance anymore, and the merengue from the Dominican Republic. So it all came to Los Angeles by way of, I would say, New York City, and that's where uh, everybody started, the, the Mexican-American people here in Los Angeles started learning about the music and the sound. And then, of course, Cal Jader was from the San Francisco Bay Area, would come down with his band, uh, to Los Angeles, to the Palladium and, and, and other clubs. I remember we used to play a club in East L.A. on Woody Boulevard uh, called uh, the M Club. Yeah. The M Club. And, and Cal Jader wrote a song called Mambo at the M for that club. And, Mar uh, and Cal Jader used to tell me that Marlon Brando used to come in and sit in with the band and play bongos with the band back in the 50s in early 60s, oh and I God. became a very good friend with Marlon Brando before he passed away also, because he, Marlon Brando loved this music very, very much, but in those early years, in the late 50s, Marlon Brando used to actually go to the M Club and sit in with Cal Jader's band and hang out with him, so it was getting very um, well-known, and it was getting very exciting for the music, because it was barely starting out, and of course now we know uh, know this music as Latin jazz, Afro-Cuban music, or what they call salsa music nowadays. You know, uh, so many thoughts that are that are really going through my mind. I, I was going to say that that I I, I uh, originally, as I when I started this process of interviewing, uh, you know, uh, jazz musicians, musicians in general, for the last four months, and. When, what caught my attention is when I was talking to uh, the skipper, Henry Franklin, the bass player, and Carl Burnett, the drummer, and they both grew up in Southern California in, in segregated neighborhoods, and they were very close with Roy Ayers, and they talked about how they, Roy was obsessed with Cal Jader's music. And the more that I go through this process, it seems to me that he was doing something, and again, I'm not a musician, and, and this is kind of the crux of it, that my question is, was it was it his playing of the of the vibes that that was that was progressive or was it his orchestration of the type of music could you could you talk about what Cal Jader was responsible for uh, musically in your mind that was revolutionary well i think it was all of that uh, what those guys were hearing They're, those guys are a little bit older than me i'm going to i'm t i turned 60 in october those guys that you were speaking of are, are a little bit older than me and, uh, and great musicians, um, and I think they were hearing the, the music quality, the quality of Cal Jeter's music, first of all. Cal had a great uh, knack for, for picking out, uh, like, jazz standards and doing them as mambos or cha-cha-chas in, in a Latin rhythm, as well as Cal Jeter was a great musician, great vibraphonist. Uh, Cal Jeter was a great percussionist, and, and a, he could play piano, great musician, and, and Cal had his own 
sound. He had his own touch uh, to the vibes. The mallet would lay on the on the bar. He had a certain sound that he had. It was really a, his own sound and his own touch, and, and it and it was so mellow. Cal Cal Jader never overplayed. He would breathe, what they call breathing. He would breathe in between his phrases and his ideas. And the only one that I think that sounded, uh, uh, that Cal Jader was trying to sound like, Cal Jader loved Milk Jackson uh, bags. They call yeah, them sure, bags. sure. Milk Jackson was his favorite vibraphone. As a matter of fact, he wrote a song called uh, Mood for Milk on the uh, Latin concert record. And... Uh, so Cal loved the way he sounded, and he tried to sound like Milk Jackson. But of course, during that process of, of, of learning to play and, and coming up with your own sound, Cal came up with his own style and his own sound, and it was very rit- rit- rhythmical and very melodic, because uh, Cal, ja- Cal Jader had a great uh, jazz background, uh, musical training of, of jazz music, melodies, harmonies, as well as learning the Latin rhythms, the mambo, the cha-cha-cha, and whatnot. So you put all that together, and I think that's what Carbonet and, and, and the Skipper were hearing, all of that, and it was so tasty and so flavorful and, and so rich with the uh, harmonies and, and, and the melodies. I mean, man, if, if you're a jazz musician at that time, you, you couldn't do nothing but love it. Right, it was, it was, it was t- I just wanted to say, uh, I know that... Uh, your uh, your 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 buddy Ramon Band is playing drums with with the skipper now. He's I saw him I saw them play. It's it, he's he's a wonderful drummer. I love him, man. That's right, Ramon. We're we're childhood uh, friends from the beginning. I met Ramon when I was like in the ninth grade, and and Ramon didn't really know much about Latin music at that time. He was into uh, Jimi Hendrix and, uh, <laughs> and, and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yeah, sure, sure. And I, I brought him to my mother's garage and started putting on Cal Jada records for him, Tito Puente records, Machito, Tito Rodriguez, and, and Ramon Banda just loved it from that day on, and 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 he started running and buying his own Cal Jada records and then Tito Puente records and whatnot from there on in, you know. You know, uh, yeah, actually, the album that I was listening to quite a bit this week in preparation was, uh, I think it's Sonanda, the the yeah. pr- that you did, and he he's on that as well. And that that that's essentially a, an album that you you know fully dedicated to Cal. Well, that record was my first record that I did uh, with with my own band uh, at that time. It was about well, I'm trying to think. It was about nineteen eighty eighty two eighty three. 83, maybe, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Cal Jeter passed away in 82 on Cinco de Mayo in Manila in the Philippine Islands, and I was with him when he passed. But I recorded... Cal Jeter had got me a record contract with Concord Records. At that time, uh, the founder of Concord Records, uh, Carl Jefferson, was the, the founder of the, the record company. He had made this side branch called Picante for Cal Jader, and Cal Jader... I was the first artist that Cal Jader signed to Picante, uh, a Concord Picante record label, in uh, 1982, before, six months before he passed away. Cal signed me to the label, and, uh, and I guess it was about 83, I recorded Sonando, my first record uh, with my own band. I had already had two other records out on another record label, uh, the Discovery record label, without Marks, and I had just put a bunch of musicians together and, and put those records together. But by this time, I had my own band. Cal Jader had passed away, and I recorded my first record, Sonando. 
You know, you, you brought up something earlier that caught my attention. The idea that uh, you used to watch your sisters, uh, you know, dancing, and it's how you developed, uh, in many ways, developed your own rhythms, and you learned how to dance, too. Cal was, uh, in speaking to um, Elizabeth, his daughter, she talks about him growing up in uh, similar settings, uh, sort of vaudeville settings, where you had uh, theatrical stuff, where you had part theater and part dance. And, I, and I, I think that, I mean, how much do you think that dancing and rhythm tap dancing has to do with developing your own timing and rhythm and how much that played into to Cal's success as well? Oh, I, I think it was very, very important because it, many people don't know Cal Jada was a, a tap dancer. Right. He was a great tap dancer. As a matter of fact, I remember one night I was playing with him at the old concert spot of the sea, it was on the beach, Hard Rumsey's Club, and we were playing there one night, and I was on stage, and I seen, uh, at that time to me, it, it, it was Jed Clampett walk in. Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies? <laughs> well, that's Buddy Epson. But Buddy Epson, I seen Buddy Epson walk into the club, and to me it was Jed Clappett, you know, <laughs> from the Beverly Hills. Exactly, of course, of course. Anyway, uh, little did I know on the break, he came to the back room and, and was hugging Cal, and they, they're old friends. Uh, Cal Jader and Buddy Epson were great friends, and I didn't know that. You know, he, and that's when the, 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 the series was out, the, the Beverly Hillbillies, and I said, wow, there's Jed Clampett from Beverly Hillbillies, <laughs> but it was Buddy Epson, and I had forgotten that he was also a great tap dancer, and Cal Jader used to do some old vaudeville shows with him, and as a matter of fact, that night in the dressing room was the first time I ever seen Cal Jader tap, because Buddy told him, hey, Cal, let's do our old routine. And, and they wow. started tap dancing in the back room together, and, and and man, Cal could still tap. And this was many, many, many years later after he stopped tap dancing. So I think it was very important uh, that Cal, you know, first of all, to be a, a great tap dancer, you got to have rhythm, and you got to understand these complex uh, uh, cross rhythms and and polyrhythms and all this different stuff that happens when they're tap dancing. And once again, Cal Jada was a great jazz drummer. He was the drummer, a jazz drummer. With a, he started off with the Dave Brubeck uh, trio uh, playing jazz drums and bongos. So all this played a very important part in the growth and the life of Cal Jader, uh, starting off with tap dancing, playing drums, and then going into playing vibes. And I think it, it, it had something to do with the, um, because the rhythms were complex, you actually had to, your spacing, it was important to create, uh, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? You, you, you didn't want to, you said he didn't overplay, he, no. didn't, he didn't overplay, and I think he learned this from his, from the tap dancing, because with the rhythms, if you got too spastic or out of control, it, you know, you were just making movements for no reason. You really had to be very, you had to, uh, you had to, uh, be selected with, with your movements. In between the rhythms, and then you had to breathe, what they call breathing. He would breathe in between his solos. Like, Cal Jada would play a nice line. He'd play a... And then he'd, he'd put his head up and actually, like, breathe. You know, he'd actually, like, kind of look at the audience and then get back down and then, and then go into another idea. Like, he actually would breathe, physically breathe in between. I mean, they call it breathing in between the solos, but, I mean, you don't have to really physically breathe but it would leave space exactly space and and and, and like what cal jeter used to repeat what count basie said it's it's not what you play sometimes 
that makes it swing and groove. It's what you don't play that makes it swing and groove. Wow. You know what I mean? Wow. wow. I, I, yeah. I dig that. I love it. I, and I... So, this... this uh, I wanted to... One of the questions I had for you, and I, if, as much as you can speak to it, I was... What was the significance that the, the Brubeck, Desmond, Garaldi, Jader band had... Uh, in general, those guys were all prolific songwriters, but it seemed to me that's where uh, Cal's uh, real jazz beginnings started, and I wasn't sure how much you had a chance to to, to listen to them. But they seem to be a, 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 an extremely significant uh, band in the in the in the in the community of jazz. Well, yeah, you know, of course, Cal Jeter started with Dave Brubeck playing jazz drums, and then later on, he met Paul Desmond. And 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 uh, and and played with Paul Desmond and, and whatnot, and and of course, like you you mentioned, they're all great songwriters, and I'm sure Cal learned a great deal by uh, by being around such great songwriters, great musicians like uh, like Brubeck and, and Paul Desmond and, and people like that, and then of course from there, Cal went on to play vibes with George Shearing's band, exactly George Shearing, and he was with George Shearing's band. And that's where he met Armando Peraza, the great Cuban conga drummer from Cuba, and, and uh, who is still alive today. Armando's still alive today, and who later on played with Santana for many, many years later. But uh, uh, Cal uh, developed, and I think uh, uh, learned a great deal by playing with all these different types of uh, bands or with these great jazz legends and great jazz bands, and then learning about the, the Cuban rhythms. And then he told me, that when he finally put his band together in the early 50s, he had a, he first he put a jazz band together. He just had a straight up jazz band. And he said they went back, they went to New York City, uh, back east to play in New York. And he said on the break, somebody told him, man, you gotta go down the street here and hear these Latin bands playing <laughs> at the Palladium. And that's when Tito Puente, Machito, and Tito Rodriguez used to play at the Palladium in New York City. And he said he'd run down there on his break and, and and go hear him play a couple of numbers, and he said he was just overtaken by the the rhythm and the people dancing and the because he was playing in a jazz club with a jazz band at first. He said he came home back home to San Francisco, and that's when he put his Latin jazz band together, and that was in the early fifties. And that early band that he had was with Benny Velarde on timbales, who's still alive today and lives in San Francisco. Um, the Duran brothers, uh, Carlos Duran, Manny Duran, uh, Carlos played bass, Manny Duran played piano, uh, who I also had the pleasure and honor of working with and recording with myself. And uh, Edro Rosales was a singer and a conga drummer in the band at that time. And this was Cal Jader's first Latin jazz band after he heard the bands in New York. He came home to San Francisco to, to put his first Latin jazz band together. And that was in the early, early years. Would you say that he was the only one at that time when he came back and he brought in, you know, uh, the guys you mentioned, and then of course the the band that that I'm somewhat familiar with, which is, you know, part of that George Shearing group, the Alma Kibben band with Willie Bobo and Mongo. Was yeah. it just the idea of bringing in Latin percussion, but it was, or or was it the the the, the, the and just the rhythms? Them, can you talk about how the rhythms changed? How it went from just being a straight jazz band to a more Lat Af uh, Afro-Cuban band? Well, yeah, but like I mentioned earlier, uh, Jake, you know, Cal had a, a really a good sense of what songs lend themselves 
to Latin style. Like, Cal, of course, grew up with all the American standards uh, here in the United States, and he grew up uh, knowing all about jazz standards. So he knew all those type of that type of music and those tunes, and he figured out which ones would lend themselves the melodies uh, and the harmonies would lend themselves to be able to be played as a mambo or cha-cha-cha. Many, many tunes can be played Latin style, but not all of them, you know what I mean? So the, 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 the melodies have to fall in sync or fall in line or fall in the rhythms of the mambo and cha-cha-cha. Or, of course, the, the slow pieces, they would play the bolero, which is a Latin ballad, you know. So Cal knew, had a lot of ideas of which ones would work, uh, the melodies that would lend themselves to these rhythms. And that's where, uh, later on, the band you were talking about with Al McKibben and Willie Bobo and Mongo Santa Maria and uh, uh, Lonnie Hewitt on piano and later on Vince Guaraldi on piano. Uh, that was in their early, uh, the late 50s when they put that band together because see, Cal seen Willie Bobo and Mogo Santa Maria, they both used to be in Tito Puente's orchestra in New York City. And Cal seen them play and he, Cal told me that he went up to Mongo and told Mongo, hey, would you guys like to move to California? to San Francisco and play in my band. And he asked Mongo and Willie Bobo if they wanted to join his band, and they did. They moved from New York City to San Francisco and joined the Cal Jader band, and he got them from the Tito Puente band. Now, why... He was... It was... That's that's remarkable. They they were... I guess we will never know this, but was it was it they were looking for a change? Cal was pretty persuasive. I mean, that's, that's amazing that he was able to get him to go all the way across the coast. Well, you know, I, I think, uh, Jake, at that time, you know, Willie and, and, and Mongo, they had to play with all the, the best bands in New, in New York. And they had to play with everybody, and they were the best percussion, some of the best, very best percussionists in New York City. Of course, there was others, like Candido and Patato and, and, and uh, people like that who, sure. who played with other groups, you know. But uh, um, I think they were just, you know, wanted a change, and wanted to try something different, and Cal Jader had a fresh new style, a new sound, and, and then they wanted to come out to California. They they had never been out to California, I guess, before, and they wanted to come out and, and, and see what it was like out here. So they were looking for a change, you know what I mean, and, and wanted to try something different, and they knew uh, of Cal's uh, earlier records that, that he played uh, good vibes, and, and I, I guess uh, little by little they just figured, hey, man, let's go out to California and see what we can do with this. And man, when they, that band, it went another notch up with that band. Actually, his first band, the guys I mentioned with Ben Velarde and uh, uh, Luis Miranda was in that band a little later on, the early band. Then he got the band with Momo Santa Maria, uh, Willie Bobo, Al McKibben, Lonnie Hewitt. Uh, when that band came on, man, it, it, to me it went another notch up. Those guys could really burn and really play. Um, and I think mostly because the guys the original first band he had, they grew up in California and learned to play the, the, the Latin music here in California. And at that time, in the early 50s, it was not as aggressive or progressive as the, the percussionists and the musicians that were coming out of New York City. They were from Cuba. They were from Puerto Rico. They knew the rhythms very, very well because that's where they come from. The guys here in California were Mexican-American, and Benny Velarde was from Panama, I think, originally, but he grew up in San Francisco. So 
they had a step. Uh, how can I say they, could have, they had a step ahead because they were from Cuba, they were from Puerto Rico, and they knew these rhythms very well. The guys out in California were Mexican Americans that were learning the rhythms at the time. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I, I, I'm totally. This is beautiful. I, I, is it is it possible that geographically? I mean, we know about sunny California. We know about this sort of the the. Um, the opportun- opportunities through experimentation, and we know the Bay- what the Bay Area was like at that time. Um, so I'm wondering if, if it also had to do with the coastal, the idea of just California lent itself to having more space. And it, like as, as you said before with Basie, it's not what you play, but what you don't play. Where, where on the East Coast, they were just, they were like madmen, and the emotions were flying out of them, and they were just, they were, they were hammering. But on the yeah, West Coast, I think it might have something to do with what they call the California cool. Yeah, you know? t- talk about you that. Know, a lot of cool jazz musicians out here. And it was more like just laid back, cool style, which was, you know, great because it was his own sound and style. And in New York, the guys were very aggressive in playing, I mean, very progressive stuff. It was it was getting deep, you know what I mean? It was getting heavy. And, and, and California was, was learning about it. We were learning about the music at the time. And, of course, nowadays... You can't tell the difference. I mean, now that you know, we've done learned all about jazz and the Latin rhythms and whatnot. And now many Cuban people have moved out to California, as well as people from Puerto Rico and and whatnot. People from Africa, where the drums come from. So now it's a big melting pot out here, even in California. Nowadays, it's we have caught up to the the style, the sound, and and now we're creating our own sound and style, uh, even again. You know, so. It, I think it's just a, a really interesting uh, fact that, that, that what, the way it happened, you know what I mean? And and like I said, even myself, uh, when I was growing up, and, and by, by the time I started growing up in the 60s, uh, there was already Latin jazz bands here that were doing very well. Eddie Connell, the great piano player Eddie Connell, who I got to work with for four years before he passed away. Eddie Cano had his uh, Latin jazz band here. Rene Tuzet, originally from Cuba by way of Miami, by way, all the way to Los Angeles, he came out here and he put a Latin band together. So, and there was a Bobby, Mon- Bobby Montes had a band, another vibe player, Mexican-American vibe player from Los Angeles, who had a good little Latin jazz band. They were already creating and learning the Afro-Cuban style from Cuba and New York. And, and even when I grew up in the 60s, uh, it was a little bit hard because the music kind of died out in the 60s because that's when the British invasion came in with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and then later on the acid rock music with Jimi Hendrix and all that, all that uh, in the 60s. So Latin music kind of took a, a back seat, so to speak. But it's funny, for me it never did because, once again, I was raised with this music ever since I was a little boy. And for me, I always loved the Mambo and Cha-Cha-Cha and these great Latin bands, where my friends, when I grew up here in California, would always tell me, hey, put on Jimi Hendrix, put on the Beatles, put on uh, that kind of music that was really popular at the time, put on the Cream and uh, all that loud rock music. And I would want to put on the Tito Puente records for my friends in high school, and they used to tell me, Poncho, why do you like that music? That music is for old people. (laughs) Old people's music. And it's funny, nowadays, those, I still have some of those, thank God, some of those friends are still alive. Yeah. And they tell me, Poncho, you are way ahead of us. Way. <laughs> <laughs> because you I know, would I mean, always want to put on the Cal Jader record, the Tito Puente record, and 
going, hey man, put on Jimi Hendrix, you know? And then, and, and then of course, during all that time, that's when soul music was uh, very popular. James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, all that stuff came out. So there was a lot of things going on in the 60s, and, and Latin jazz kind of took a little bit of a back seat there for a minute, but it gave me enough time to start learning more of how to actually play the drum and learning these proper patterns on these rhythms on the timbales, congas, and bongos. As a matter of fact, the, I remember when I was learning to play in my mother's garage listening to Cal Jada records and Tito Puente records, uh, we went to a park, uh, myself and Ramon Banda, we went to a local park here in Los Angeles called Griffith Park. Every Sunday there would be a bunch of conga drummers there right. playing on, uh, outside. And there was two groups. There was one big giant group down the hill underneath some trees with about 30 or 40 drummers. And these were guys playing any kind of drum you can think of, even tr upside down trash cans. Uh, and they were just beating out rhythms and nobody knew what they were doing. It was like a big, it was a lot of noise. And we did that for about an hour or two. And I thought, man, these guys are nuts. Just nothing's coming out of this. And then they told me, no, the guys that play good are up on the hill in this little flat area where there used to be a building. And see, there was a, a foundation. It was flat. It wasn't uh, the grass. It wasn't the regular park uh, 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 floor. It wasn't grass. It was a flat area. And they would put the congas on there, and it would sound better, first of all, because it was a flat, solid uh, area. And they would play up there, and it was about maybe eight guys or ten guys, and there were Cubans and Puerto Ricans. And we went up the hill with my congas, and we heard those guys play, and we said, wow, now these guys sound good. Right. They were playing the rumba and the wawanko patterns and the Afro-Cuban 6-8 patterns, and, man, we were just like, wow, now this is where it's happening. The guys down the hill, forget it. They're nuts, you know? <laughs> there ain't nothing going on down there. So we're watching these guys play. And, and little did I know they were, they were Cubans and Puerto Ricans. And I told the guy, hey, could I sit in? Could I play one of the drums? And the guy told me, are you Cuban? And I said, no. And he said, are you Puerto Rican? I said, no. He said, what are you? And I said, uh, I'm a Chicano. Yeah. I'm a Mexican-American. And the guy told me, it was a Cuban guy, he said, Mexican-Americans can't play congas. You know, and, and, and see, there was some truth to that at that time in the early years because we were just learning about all their rhythms, you know, from Cuba and Africa and Puerto Rico, and we're Mexican-Americans from here. We said, well, and I told the guy, well, how do you know I can't play? You haven't heard me yet. Right, right, right. The guy went like that with his hand, like, God, get out of here. Get lost, you know? And what happened is he was playing for about 10 minutes on the solo drum, which is called a, a quinto, and he got up for a second to go get a, a drink of water or something. As soon as he got up, I jumped on that little drum, and I started soloing, and, and then everybody stopped. I mean, they didn't stop. They kept playing. But people started looking at me, and the guy came back, and he let me play for about 10 minutes. He goes, man, you sound great, you know? And, and he told me, your father's got to be Cuban, or your mother's got to be Puerto Rican. And I said, no. They're from You're Mexico. like, no, man, no way. Yeah, they're from Mexico. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I even had that uphill battle myself when I was f first starting out here. And, and, and now, of course, that's, that's no longer the way it is nowadays with the uh, Internet and, and congas are everywhere now, and you can learn so much now. Where in my time, there was no Internet. There was, I was lucky to look at the... I learned to play by looking at the back of the album covers. 
Uh, they would show a picture of Mongo or Tito Puente or somebody, and there'd be a snapshot of him getting ready to smack a conga drum. And I would see the way he held his hand, and that's how I learned to play, by looking at pictures and listening to records. Right on, Ponce. That's, such, that's so cool, man. I, 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 want, I, 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 I do a lot of visual learning myself from these albums. I mean, whether I look at you on Sonata and, you know, like just the idea that you, you're surrounded by congas and I know that, that it was the first album that you made, you know, in, in, in tribute to Cal and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, just in my mind, I'm like, hey, you have a very thoughtful expression on your face. Like you're in, yeah, you're in man. Well, you know, I just love I love the music, and I, I like I said, I was raised with this music myself, and raised with the drums. I, after I got old enough to know what was going on, of course, I, I I mean I couldn't I couldn't not buy enough drums. You know what I mean? Uh, I have common drums all over my house, timbales, checkers, bells. I mean, you name it. You know, <laughs> my house is full of it now. You know what I mean? <laughs> what I wa- what I wanted to tell you was I, I interviewed Ayrton Moreira last week, and he told a very similar story when he first moved to New York in like 67, 68, and he was going to the Puerto Rican clubs and the and the Brazilian clubs, and all he wanted to do was, he had a shaker, you know, like a little shaker, and he wanted yeah. to sit in, and they would say, no, 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 you, you, you can't, just turn your back, sit, just, just, you can shake it, but don't be on stage. Yeah, and they, you know, Jake, I, I gotta tell you that it, it, it was absolutely true, especially in the, the 60s, and those 50s and 60s, the early years, it was more secretive, or, or they didn't want to. They didn't want to tell you too much how it played. Right. And and and, and just so the, the the younger people know nowadays what we, we had to go through. Of course, nowadays you got the internet. You got how to learn uh, uh, DVDs, how to learn to play all the percussion instruments. I even have one out myself. You know, how, instructional DVDs and whatnot. At my time, I remember I went up to Mongo Santa Maria at the old lighthouse in Hermosa, Hermosa Beach. I was a, I was about in the ninth grade in high school, and that's the only club that I could get into with my student body card. They gave me two dollars <laughs> off, and I'm going to this club in Hermosa Beach, the world famous lighthouse, to see sure. Mongo play, and I'd sit in the front row and just stare at him. Well, one day I got I got my guts up enough to to go say hello to Mongo and he was sitting at the bar and I went up to him and my partners told him, go, go say hello to him and ask him if you're playing the pattern right because I, had, I learned the, the mambo pattern on the conga drum or at least I thought I did and I wanted to check with Mongo to see if I was playing it properly so I went up to him and I said hello Mongo my name is Poncho and he told me yeah I've seen you here before because I would every time Mongo's band would come to town I would go see him there well I told him I wanted to ask you, I'm learning to play the congas, can I show you the pattern that I'm playing, and can you tell me that it, if, it's, if I'm playing it right? And he didn't talk too much. Well, this was all in Spanish, of course. Right. And, and so he said, let me see. And I, so I put my hands up on, on, the, on the bar, and I started playing the conga pattern, uh, which is a mambo pattern, uh, or they call it a marcha, or I call it a three-point shuffle. It's a mambo pattern. And I, I, I played it for him on the bar, on top of the bar, and he's looking at my hands move and play, and then I stopped playing, and then there was total silence for a minute. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to let me have it or something. And then he says, I says, How, is, did I do it right? And he goes, muscle menos. And that means more or less. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and I said, oh, and he said, see, sí, muscle metal poncho, 
That means more or less. More, you got it pretty close, you know, more or less. And then I waited for, for him to say something else to me, like, but, you know, like to correct me or to help me, maybe. And that was it. He didn't say another word to me. <laughs> yeah. So I said, oh, well, thank you, sir. And I walked away. <laughs> the fact that you had... So that's how hard it was to get anything out of it. Exactly. Oh, I see. Okay, now I see. Yeah. Now you're, you see what I'm saying? Exactly. He tell me nothing else. Like, well, you're doing this wrong or your hands this. Or, he just, that's it. It was over. The conversation was over. And it's funny. Many, many years later, we became very, very good friends. Mongo was a guest with my band many times. As a matter of fact, the last time Mongo performed was with my band before he passed away. And we played at uh, uh, New York's Carnegie Hall. And Mongo was a surprise guest that night. He came out. He got a standing ovation when he walked out. He got a standing ovation when he played his song Afro Blue. He took a solo. And he got a standing ovation when he left the stage. So Mongo became a very good friend of mine. As a matter of fact, my oldest son is named Mongo. I named my oldest son after him. So from that little conversation at the bar, Masomenos, to I named my son after him, you know? Did, did, you know, actually, just, that, that gave me some goosebumps. That's a that's, uh, that's just a great story. I, I think the other thing that's, and I wanted to relate this to Cal, is the idea that the accessibility, Poncho, that you had to these guys that, even though they, they didn't speak a lot, they spoke through action. You know, Mongol, you could watch him, and you yeah. could be right with him at the bar. He didn't have an oh. entourage. It wasn't like, and, and you, it wasn't like you had to pay $60, $70 to go see him. You were right there to learn from him. And even couple, though he did a couple of dollars, man, and, and, and a couple of cherry cokes. A couple of cherry cokes, yeah. And 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 the, but I, I wonder when you first linked up, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but when you first linked up with Cal and as you got to know Cal more, you guys were constantly you were still learning and growing, were you not? And how how was well, how did you guys uh, learn from each other? I mean, it was it was it more did you like did you learn through action, or was it through articulated, like, talking about, about stuff? Mostly talking, and I don't think Cal learned too much from me, <laughs> but I sure learned a great deal from him, let me tell you. Yeah, let's but, talk you know, about I that. Learned, I learned a great deal from Cal by just being around him every day. I was with Cal Jader's band for seven and a half years, and I joined the Jader band New Year's Eve, uh, 1975. And I was with him. I had the seniority in the band. I was with him uh, for seven and a half years. And I was also with Cal Jader the day he died in Manila in the Philippine Islands. I was with him there uh, at the Manila Medical Center when he died of a massive heart attack. Mm. But uh, I learned a great deal just by being around him and talking to him. But it's funny that you say that. I mean, I would never put myself on the same level as Cal Jader because to me, He's one of my heroes in life. and But he used to ask me quite a few questions about stuff, and he would ask me about, hey, do you think this song would work good as a, a bossa nova or a mambo or something? And, and I mean, in those days, I, I didn't even register it because I I was just a nobody. I, I was in Cal Jada's band, you know. But now I think back about it, yes, he did ask me quite a few questions about Latin rhythms and do you, I, th what I think about doing this song in this fashion or that fashion uh, because I was kind of like the co-leader of the band. Uh, I remember even after Jader got a little older and tired he, he and a new guy would come in the band, 
he would have me rehearse the band without the vibes. We just, I would use the rhythm section, the piano player, bass player, drums, and, and myself, and I would just explain to the new guy, whoever that might be. I remember a bass player came in one time, and I said, Poncho, can you, can you rehearse them for me and tell them what's going to happen tonight? So I would rehearse the band in the daytime, tell the guy, okay, he's going to play this song, we're going to do this, and make sure when you do this, stay out away from this. And I, I was kind of like running down for him. That way he could rest in the daytime and then just come out and play at night. And this was getting already towards the end, you know. But but so I learned a great deal just by being around Cal Jader, and not so much hands-on, just by hanging around him, walking around in the daytime and, and, and hanging out with him and, and, and having a drink with him after the gig. Just the, the stories he used to tell me were amazing, you know, just some really amazing stories that I learned from Cal Jader. There's a funny, uh, it's really interesting, I was, I was searching around the internet and there's a, a, a performance uh, from, ni- from April of 1977. It's you guys in a studio in Tokyo with Art Pepper. Uh, I remember that. Do you remember that? Because I, I, Claire Fisher's on it, and this guy, this guy yeah. Bob Redfield's on guitar. I was like, boy, that's smoking. And there's some interviews on it. Can you? I got to get my hands on it. But I was like, what, what were you? What were you guys up to at that point? You were you were you were doing a Japan tour. Yeah, what happened with that is is a, a Japanese uh, organization that was involved with the Monterey Jazz Festival. And see, Jimmy Lyons, it was the founder and president of the Monterey Jazz Festival. Uh, uh, general manager of the Monterey Jazz Festival and founder of the Monterey Jazz Festival, Jimmy Lyons. Jimmy Lyons was best friends with Cal Jader. They were the best of friends. Wow. And so Jimmy got, the, they, they had an organization that they used to deal with in Japan. And uh, they asked to take the Cal Jader band to Japan. And we did Tokyo, Osaka, uh, a couple other spots. And they said that we could have a guest. And at that time, Claire Fisher was in the band. Claire Fisher was the piano player in the band. And our guest was Art Pepper, and I, who I had never met before, mm. but I had some of his records, and I knew he was a great alto player, uh, and I knew he had some drug problems also, you know, the story of Art Pepper, but I never had really played with him or met him before. And uh, it was really amazing uh, when Art Pepper went to Japan with us, because uh, he was uh, uh, coming off of heroin, trying to get off of heroin. And uh, are you there? Yeah, I'm right here. A- anyway, uh, it ends up that um, that uh, he was like moving really slow and talking slow. And I thought, man, how's this guy going to get on stage? And he always wanted to play really up-tempo tunes. Like he used to start off with Cherokee and play one, two, one, two, three, one, ding, 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 ding. Like, <laughs> You're like, like slow whoa. down, bro. And, he, and he'd be in the, the dressing room going, uh, yeah, how much longer we got? How much <laughs> like, I mean, that slow and, and smoking cigarettes real slow. And I thought, this guy, he ain't going to make it. He's not going to make it. But I'm telling you. As soon as he got on stage, he would smile and perk up and go, and just start playing like, what? It was like night and day. Unbelievable. It was amazing. And then uh, Cal would also bring around, he played a a couple of numbers with us every night, too. Play some some standard stuff with us. So it it was uh, amazing to uh, play with Art Pepper and and Clark Fisher, some great, great musicians. And Cal used to... uh, with lots of musicians and lots of things like that. So um, I learned how to do that from 
from Jada. The the um, what was the what was the venue like? What was the scene like in that New Year's Eve? Co- First of all, how did you in the bands leading up to uh, you working with Cal? You you worked with some local bands, or at least is what I read. What were you in those local bands? What were you? What were you guys doing? Were you doing a lot of original tunes, or were you doing a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of Jader stuff? No, uh, what happened for me is I was playing with a local group here in Los Angeles by the name of Sabor. It was a local band. Never made any recordings or anything. It was a local wedding band. We used to play at weddings every weekend or house parties. And it was a good-sized band with three horn players and a rhythm section, and I played congas in, in, in that band, and I was also a singer. I was a lead vocalist. I would sing some of the salsa stuff and some old doo-wop or oldie bagoodie, what they call oldie bagoodies and soul music with this band. So it was like a wedding band, and it was called Sabor. And Ramon and Tony Bonnet were in that band with me at that time. Wow. At that time. And we were playing at a local club here in Los Angeles called the uh, International press club in Pico Rivera, uh, which is a, a suburb of Los Angeles, and we used to play four nights at this little club there. We started playing this club thing. We, we had never really played club the club circuit, so we started doing four nights in the club, and we liked it, and we actually enjoyed it, and and um, and this band would play a little bit of salsa music, and they would play, at that time, Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Tower Power had barely came out at that time. So they were doing a lot of Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Tower Power music. And then they would do some Ray Verretto and some Mongo stuff. That's where I'd come in. And then we used to do some old oldies or doo-wop, and, or, or not so much doo-wop, like what they call oldie but goodies, uh, music that, and soul music. So it was a little all-around band. We played this club, uh, International Press Club, and some guy walked into the club one night and it was a predominantly a Latin club. It was mostly Latino people in this club. I would say 97% Latinos in this club. And this American white guy walked in wearing a hat and smoking a cigar. He stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Later on, I found out that he lived around the block, and he used to walk to the club. That's how close the club was to his house. Well, what happened is this gentleman walked in, and I, I seen him walk in and sit at the bar, and I thought, wow, what, what's that guy doing in this club? Anyway, I took a break, went to the bar to get a beer, and the guy told me, hey, my name is Ernie, Ernie, and uh, I'm a personal friend of Cal Jader's. And I, <laughs> I looked at the guy like, I, I didn't tell him, but I looked at him and I wanted to say, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, and, and he's also my uncle, right? Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't believe the guy. I did not believe him. But the guy said, you want, you, you, can I buy you a drink? I said, yeah, you can buy me a drink. And he bought me a drink, and then after I got my drink, I said, hey, Ernie, thank you so much for the drink. I said, and don't forget to tell your friend Cal Jader about me. And I walked away because he told me, man, you sound really good. You know, you, you play good. He heard my, the band I was playing with, that local band. Well, two weeks later, I went to concert by the steam in Redondo Beach to see Cal Jader's band perform, which I did many a time before. Me and my wife and a, uh, one of my friends, we went, and I was going downstairs to pay the coin to the club to see Cal Jader, and who was downstairs talking to Cal Jader? This guy, Ernie, who I had seen at this club in L.A., he was standing down there talking to Cal Jader, and it was he was talking to him about me at the time I walked up. How, long, how much time had passed between the bar meeting and that, and that concert? Two weeks. Un- Unbelievable. I, I basically forgot about this guy. You know what I mean? Simple twist of fate right there. 
Yeah, because to me he was a liar. You know what I mean? <laughs> you didn't buy it. Yeah, you didn't buy it. You don't know Cal Jader. You know what I mean? Well, anyway, sure enough, the guy was down there and he pointed up the stairs and said, Cal, there he is. That's <laughs> Get him and on I stage. fell down. And I went down the stairs nervously. And I, I met Cal He introduced me, Cal, this is Poncho. Poncho, this is Cal. And I said, oh, hello, Mr. Jader. And, oh, just call me Cal, you know? And I thought, oh, my God, I'm shaking hands with Cal Jader. And he told me, hey, man, my friend Ernie says you play really good. And Cal told me, you want to sit in? And I told him, when? He goes, tonight. Oh, wow. I said, oh, my God. I got nervous. I said, well, yeah, okay. And I paid my money and went and I sat in and my wife said, is he really going to let you go up there and play? <laughs> and I said, well, he said he was going to call me up there. Well, halfway through the set, he said, we got a guest on Congress. His name is Poncho Sides. Come on up. And and the guy who was playing Congress with him at that time was Michael Smith, a guy from Chicago. Oh, sure. I, I know Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I sat down. And I sat down and I played and the crowd reacted. I took a solo. Cal liked it. And he had me stay up there the rest of the set. I did four numbers with him that night. And then he asked me for my phone number before I left. And I thought, well, he's just being nice. You know what I mean? And on the way home, I was on cloud nine. I was telling my wife, man, I can tell my grandchildren that I sat in with Cal Jader. You know, I was on a high. You must thinking, have been. Oh, my God. Oh. I, I sat in with the Cal Jader band. Wait till my brothers and sisters hear about this. You know what I mean? And I thought that's all there was to it. I gave him my phone number, but I, I never thought he would call me. Well, sure enough, a couple of weeks went by, and he called me. It was in the wintertime, because New Year's Eve was coming up. And he said, Poncho, I need you to play with me in Los Angeles and four nights in San Diego. Can you do it? And I, I couldn't believe he even asked me. And he asked me to play New Year's Eve with him at the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel in on Wilshire Boulevard in downtown L.A. Now that, to a guy like me from the neighborhood, was like, you don't even go by there because that's where rich people go out to. You know? Right, right. Because I'm, I'm the youngest of 11. We come from the neighborhood. Sure, you know what I mean? sure, sure. Well, anyway, long story short, I couldn't believe it. I got, I went to go play with him that night, and he hired me for just one week. After the first set on New Year's Eve, 1975, after the first set, he told Poncho, the gig is yours. And I was with him for seven and a half years. I recorded about a dozen records with him. I won a Grammy with him in 1980. We were nominated for a Grammy in 1980, the following year, 1981. And I was with him the day he passed in Manila in the Philippine Islands. Talking to Pancho Sanchez, we're going to take a, a short break and come right back. Everybody hang loose. <laughs> 